With new legal risks and regulatory challenges constantly arising, how can we stay current and be best prepared? Join me, your host, Ronald J. Coleman of Georgetown Law for Compliance and Legal Risk, a podcast brought to you by Georgetown Law and EY. In each episode, I interview thought leaders in areas relating to legal risk and regulatory compliance. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Compliance and Legal Risk. As usual, I'm your host, Ronald J. Coleman, and I informally go by RJ. Today's episode is on fostering a culture of compliance. And I think this is a really important area. Regulations can be very unclear and complex. The laws of one country can have impacts in another country. And sometimes we may not even know that the laws of another country apply to us. And regulators can also change the way that they enforce rules over time. In such a challenging compliance environment, forward planning may be critical. And to help us better understand how to foster a culture of compliance, I'm joined today by two distinguished guests, Jeremy Osinski and Professor Don Diamasis. So to get things kicked off, I'll ask each of our guests to tell us a little bit about themselves, what they do, and how they got there. Jeremy, let's start with you. Great. Thank you, RJ, and thank you for having us on the podcast here. I'm Jeremy Osinski, principal within EY's Forensic and Integrity Services Practice, and I'm one of the leaders of our compliance team, where we really work with clients to digitize and automate and enhance and augment their compliance processes specifically through the thoughtful use of data and technology. My team as well really focuses on innovation and harnessing the latest and greatest emergent technologies, be it robotic process automation, big data, artificial intelligence, and most recently generative AI, and really trying to make those technologies real in terms of providing uplift to an organization's compliance function. It's great to be here. Don? Well, thank you, uh, RJ, and it's uh, great to be on this podcast. Um, I'm currently a professor at Georgetown Law uh, and faculty director of a center here on transnational business and the law. Uh, among the courses that I teach here are international business transactions uh, and international business compliance. I have a, a, a history before academia, uh, which was as a partner at a big international law firm uh, and as general counsel of a U.S. government uh, corporation involved in uh, international project finance and political risk insurance. Uh, I also serve right now on two um, uh, tribunals of international uh, financial institutions, uh, that deal with prohibited practices, mainly fraud, corruption, and collusion. Uh, and it will also or often involve uh, compliance failures uh, and the imposition of compliance programs uh, as part of uh, remedies or sanctions uh, that are imposed. So for anyone who's listened to this podcast for a time, they'll know that I like to start out with some definitional components. So 
what would be considered a culture of compliance and why is it important to have one? Excellent. It's a great question, RJ, and thank you for it. Really a culture of compliance to me and in, in reflecting on our conversations with our various clients, both large and small and domestic and, and multinational in nature, really um, invokes an environment where in individuals, employees of the company are incentivized to do the right thing, as well as it is made clear to them that they also are expected to and measured by their adherence to those those principles. And so it's an environment where employees every day are always thinking about what are those what compliance obligations exist, um, what integrity obligations exist, and how when making any sort of decision, large and small, they're always kind of in the back of their mind thinking through, um, you know, what is required and necessary in order to be compliant. Let me jump in here too, uh, uh, Jeremy, uh, um, to add that, you know, I, I think of the uh, a culture of compliance uh, as a culture that, uh, and this may go more to a uh, almost a legalistic type of formulation, uh, but a culture that promotes prevention detection and resolution of potential uh, violations of law, regulations, or company policy. Uh, and we all know that company policy often uh, goes further, uh, certainly on ethical uh, issues, uh, than mere compliance with law issues. Uh, there are uh, lots of components to compliance, which makes it so in interesting uh, and difficult at the same time. Uh, with within a company, uh, it you know involves those uh, attributes uh, and actually personal ethical attributes uh, involving uh, honesty and integrity, accountability, um, teamwork, uh, loyalty, uh, and and the like. Uh, why is it important uh, to have one? Well, it's important to have one if you're a company to, in some ways, protect and advance uh, the company's interests. Now, I use company because I actually do think of private sector companies, but I must say uh, that in my experience, every organization, uh, including public sector organizations and international organizations, uh, are keenly focused on uh, compliance issues, uh, and many of them have compliance departments and compliance officers. So now that we have a better understanding of a culture of compliance, I'm wondering what actions can an organization take to foster such a culture? And would your advice on that change based on whether the company is sort of a large, maybe even a multinational company on the one hand, and on the other hand, a much smaller company? Uh, let me let me start on that, uh, RJ. Um, and a lot has been written in the in the literature, uh, academic literature, as well as and I'm going to say pronouncements uh, from government regulators and government authorities uh, as to what a 
compliance plan should be or what it should entail and include. Uh, and I've heard anywhere from six elements to nine elements, and I've heard uh, many more uh, than that. But they tend to boil down uh, to, in some ways, maybe the most important uh, is the tone from the top. Uh, what does the, and I'll say that the top leaders of an organization, uh, and that is essentially the directors uh, and the CEO and C-suite, uh, it probably also picks up key sales uh, personnel uh, as well. Uh, and and how have they, in some ways, uh, expressed what they think about the importance of compliance? Uh, it it gets reflected actually in written policies. So having written policies and procedures uh, is a very important component, and that can exist actually whether you're a large company or a small uh, company. Now, I will say that the big challenge, of course. Uh, that you have not just in compliance, but in many, many areas is things that that a big company can invest many resources uh, in uh, a an SME, small and medium enterprise uh, doesn't have the same uh, capacity. Uh, and so the, the struggle is always to uh, try to achieve uh, compliance, but without all of the rules and regulations because you can't do it. Uh, other aspects, right, these elements, these factors that we talked about uh, will be effective communications and training, uh, written uh, whistleblowing. I mean, this issue of, of handling complaints, how can they best set up a system uh, to handle uh, that's complaints, uh, maybe anonymity, uh, confidentiality as well. Uh, if you have plan, if you have a policy, uh, if you have a, a, a program, uh, someone uh, violates uh, what is there, breaches it in some fashion. Uh, there have to be essentially uh, remedies, sanctions, discipline, uh, enforcement internally. Uh, you also see monitoring and auditing. Uh, so those are essentially, and you can you know sort of focus on some and more on others. Uh, but those are essentially the basic elements of a compliance plan. Now, my view on SMEs, they can gain maybe benefits from trade associations and others who uh, will have combined resources uh, to, uh, sort of reflect what appropriate sorts of policies are. So they're not out creating things on their own, uh, trying to leverage resources that you can find uh, in other places. Right. And I think Don really hit the nail on the head nicely there. Um, just to add a few additional observations from, from my perspective and, and from what we're saying, it really involves empowerment of different um, types of employees within the organization, right? It's It's Fine and great, and you know we welcome having strong policies and uh, web-based learnings pushed down from the top of the organization. But fundamentally, what an organization really should be doing, right, is is inspiring, perhaps, and, and empowering um, individuals that those mid-level managers, employees, uh, business partners, and, and the like, to be able to essentially take those standards and policies and make them real for the employees on a day-to-day -day basis and creating an environment by which 
an employee is comfortable in speaking out and reporting wrongdoing and, and being aware of their options for reporting potential wrongdoings or, or uh, raising concerns. Um, it, it also involves essentially having employees uh, feel comfortable that, that they will not be retaliated against um, for, for raising, raising their hand. Um, it, it also involves as, as well providing very specific, just-in-time, targeted types of communications uh, to employees. Um, so again, taking a policy, which may in fact, in most cases, is a very well-written policy, but actually making it very real and specific to the, to the employee. Um, the reality is many of the principles hold true, whether the organization is a large multinational um, enterprise or a small um, startup with just a handful of, of employees. Certainly, uh, we find that employees in certain sectors are perhaps more familiar with uh, the importance of compliance, particularly within highly regulated environments such as banking, pharmaceuticals, etc. Um, but it's it's very important to uh, draw that distinction for employees that compliance is beyond just simply following the letter of the the laws, as it were. It really involves again creating that 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 culture and and adhering to. Um, the myriad of of corporate policies and and expectations which exist. So I'd like to ask: Have compliance programs changed over the years, and if so, how? Absolutely, they certainly have have changed. We've seen it goes without saying. Um, certainly, the impact of technology shape compliance programs. Uh, we're seeing a lot more today in terms of organizations taking a data-driven approach to compliance. The quality of data, the availability of data has certainly gotten much, much better in most organizations over, over time. I would also venture that um, around the world, there's an increased expectation by regulators that data and analytics are being used. Um, again, not to create an overtly sort of quantitative metrics-driven culture, um, which sometimes may clash with um, the overall values and intents of a compliance um, program. However, being able to utilize those, those metrics in a very thoughtful way to guide a compliance program demonstrated success early on, as well as utilize data to potentially identify any, any red flags um, within a, a compliance program. So we've certainly seen seen um, the acceleration of, of programs, I'd say, through the use of, of technology. Um, to some extent, too, we're also seeing, we're working with a few clients um, currently in, in terms of utilizing technology to personalize their compliance programs, I'd say. Uh, we're seeing a lot in terms of the use of um, what we call sort of just-in-time type of compliance or what our clients refer to as just-in-time compliance programs. And so that's being able to take all the different data, run scenarios against it, and push out a very targeted communication to an employee. For example, a rather simplistic general example, but um, you know, one that's hopefully relevant and, and understandable is, is say if you have an employee who's in a sales function um, and that employee's entering data into a CRM environment, such as a Salesforce or Microsoft Dynamics, 
and maybe they're entering a prospective deal with, um, say, a government-controlled entity in an overseas jurisdiction. And then they're able to, as well, um, say we're seeing that in a separate data source, they're now booking uh, travel and requesting um, gifts and entertainment, um, as may be the cultural norms um, for that particular organization in that part of the world. And then say as well, we have other types of monitoring around that that employee and uh, potential uh, previous um, compliance concerns um, or, or issues, right? We're able now to pull all of that together in an automated way and generate to that employee really in a just-in-time way an email or similar type of communication. Almost think of it as as that employee is you know, on that flight, right? Um, they're, they're receiving essentially not, not links to hundreds of pages of compliance policies, though those certainly exist and are there as a reference, but rather a very targeted set of steps to say, hey, we noticed that, you know, next week you're going to location X to meet with Y to conduct Z type of business. Here are eight, nine, 10 things to be aware of. Um, based on the risk environment and the employee's prior prior behaviors. And, and we've seen significant traction um, and, and improvement, frankly, in those type of uh, very targeted communications. Well, I, I think Jeremy makes an excellent uh, point about technology and data. And that clearly is a huge uh, a change, evolution, really, more than a sort of discrete change uh, over a period of time. And places where you'll see it, for example, uh, would be on all of the economic sanctions that were imposed very quickly uh, by the United States and by the EU and by the UK and by others uh, in connection with the uh, sort of Ukraine uh, war. Uh, and how were uh, all of the parties subject to sanctions supposed to respond to almost daily sanctions being issued. Uh, and what you had is in some ways, third party technology and data providers uh, that played a very important role in accumulating, assembling, putting together lists uh, that then can be run against broad databases of counterparties and customers uh, and the like that are retained. So uh, data and technology, very important uh, part of the due diligence uh, process. Now, I'd like to make a couple of other points. One of the things you've seen uh, evolve is a much clearer recognition and an attempt to you know fit compliance uh not in some ways maybe neatly but fit it within uh risk management uh and risk management of course uh goes beyond uh, legal compliance uh there are matrix there are sciences uh, actually some of the uh, academic uh, books now talk about the law of risk management and compliance uh for example uh and whenever you read uh, pronouncements, certainly by U.S. government uh, regulatory authorities, uh, they always say that a compliance program has to be uh, sort of risk-driven. Uh, uh, you look to where the greatest risk is to the organization and you devote the most uh, resources there uh, since uh, businesses can't do everything. Uh, there was a real sea change in compliance in, in certain sectors, certainly the securities and financial uh, sectors, uh, sort of bank sectors, uh, that came after the 2008 
uh, sort of great recession uh, that we had uh, here, where a lot more uh, controls and requirements uh, were imposed by statute and by regulation. Uh, it's uh, now uh, very common uh, to see chief compliance officers, whereas 15 years ago, you rarely saw uh, chief compliance officers, except in very uh, dedicated areas. Uh, there and chief compliance officers actually, uh, you know, it, it's a a title that comes actually with responsibility uh, and actual potential liability. So uh, there's a lot of focus. Uh, one of the things you've seen in the last uh, ten and fifteen years is as a result of these trends. A, a great amount, a much larger amount of resources uh, being devoted into this area uh, than you'd seen before. And it's resources uh, that result in hiring uh, people, building systems, employing technology, uh, hiring uh, experts uh, and the like. I think a, a, another factor uh, is that there's this increased recognition that Compliance is not just within your own organization. It extends to the people, the entities that you're dealing with. Uh, and this then includes third parties such as suppliers, uh, because suppliers can get you in a lot of trouble. Uh, contractual counterparties, uh, even. And so there's been in some ways a, an expansion of what is meant and should be covered uh, by compliance. Uh, there, there's certainly a uh, new and growing area. It's sort of a hot, uh, hot topic uh, area, which is the role of compliance and compliance programs uh, in the ESG space, environmental, social, and governance space. And there are some laws. There are a lot of soft norms. Uh, and how should compliance uh, plans deal with these soft law, soft norm uh, issues uh, that are out there. Uh, so lots and lots of changes uh, that are occurring uh, within the sort of the, the, the area of compliance and as a result within compliance plan design and administration. And if I may, RJ, as well, um, certainly we're seeing um, exactly that in terms of the, the need for compliance functions to um, constantly be innovative and, and, and adapt um, I, I don't know that there's any other period in history in which <laughs> certainly compliance functions have been dealing with um, all of the new challenges and curveballs, which we, we've seen here in, in recent years. Um, certainly, um, you know, topics such as, as ESG, um, where there are many forming norms and expectations and those continue to evolve are, are critical. Um, certainly, ephemeral messaging is a uh, very much a, a top of mind topic for many of the uh, chief compliance officers we're we've, uh, we're in discussions with. Um, as Don mentioned, uh, sanctions has and continue will continue to be a, a hot topic. Um, and then even as well, the just the, the shifting workforce, the shifting dynamics. Uh, the hybrid nature of, of work today, the. Um, impacts of the as it's called the you know great resignation in terms of uh, many organizations today dealing with a, a labor force that um may be more subject to to turnover and the risks in which that that brings um as well as just increased disruption from a technology perspective uh we have 
compliance teams now working through um, questions around, well, what should my generative AI policy be within my organization? Um, so there's certainly a wealth of activity happening, but I think what's critical is having uh, a culture within the compliance department of, of, of innovation and teaming together and saying, hey, let's let's figure these things out. Um, you know, with an eye towards certainly what others in our in our sector and peer group may be doing, but also really importantly being focused on uh, what works within an organization and and again, how can we measure effectively the the impact of um, of any changes and policy updates and and the like. So what type of regulators are involved in enforcing compliance? Now I realize that's a broad question, but generally, who should we be worried about? For instance, I know there's US companies that are seeking to invest abroad and do business abroad and you know what issues do they have to be worried about? There's US regulators seeking to regulate conduct of foreign corporations, maybe even foreign corporations primarily doing activities abroad. And then with the move to remote work, we have employees that are working for companies in several different countries. And so I'm just trying to figure out which type of regulators should we be concerned about? Well, let me take a stab at it. And you mentioned regulators, but I'll I'll mention like the group that isn't a regulator, but is always front and center, uh, which are the criminal uh, prosecution uh, you know, sort of bodies uh, within various uh, countries. Uh, and in the United States, the Department of Justice is uh, quite uh, internationally known, at least in certain areas, uh, uh, dealing with uh, the uh, sort of enforcement of U.S. laws. Uh, one of the big areas that we've seen for many years in the United States uh, is the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Now, you have the Department of Justice is the criminal uh, sort of law enforcement authority, uh, but you've got the Securities and Exchange Commission as the regulatory uh, body that's involved. So, you know, you've got regulators, you have law uh, issues. Uh, you'll you'll have uh, within the United States uh, the economic sanctions uh, group folks, and they tend to fit within two buckets. Uh, one would be you know, out of the Treasury Department, and that's the Office of Foreign Asset Control, uh, and out of the Commerce Department that deals with uh, export uh, administration issues, and that's the Bureau of uh, in Industry and Security, BIS. Uh, and you can go down many, many specialized uh, areas or industries, uh, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. Now, I'm using U.S. examples, but each country has their own, uh, you know, sort of systems of regulations and law enforcement. Now, part of this is how active they are. Uh, and one of the issues we've seen, certainly in the corruption space, uh, is that there is a lot more activity internationally now 
in that area. France, for example, uh, passed the Sapin II law in 2016, which actually created the French Agency for uh, Anti-Corruption, uh, and that it is out beginning to do the prosecutions and enter into the types of agreements, actually deferred prosecution agreements, uh, non-prosecution agreements uh, that used to be impossible to do. Uh, in France. You've seen similar developments uh, in the UK. Uh, they actually team together from time to time on investigations. So you have actually the world in some ways uh, with its regulators to worry about. And this is a growing trend. Uh, the EU actually uh, recently, in the last uh, year or two, uh, came out with regulations on the economic sanctions side that said if you put a compliance program in place, uh, that you know th this would be uh, viewed as a, an important factor uh, in terms of uh, whether they would be able to you know sort of pursue or wish to pursue uh, certain sorts of uh, you know sort of remedies. Uh, here. So uh, lots of activity in these areas. Certainly. I'll, I'll answer as a, as a technologist, albeit nowhere near as eloquently as, as Don from a, from a legal perspective. Um, but I, I will say certainly we're seeing that the, the, the number uh, of, of regulators and, and their interests continue to, to increase. One approach historically has been to, um, you know, RJ in your question, you, you, um, mentioned, um, you know, what should companies worry about? Um, historically, that, that's been sort of one approach folks have taken to say, all right, well, sort of what are different regulators um, saying? What are they focused on? And how do we respond um, to those specific issues? In today's landscape, that, that, that approach, um, though effective, may also be incredibly uh, expensive and, and difficult to, to sustain. Um, we're increasingly seeing organizations really take the conversation up a level and, and say, how can we demonstrate really effectively what we call strategic intent <laughs> within their compliance processes, right? Not to say, you know, look, we will turn over every every stone or we'll surveil every employee or every interaction. That certainly is not practical, but but rather having a compliance program in place that again, is is consistent, is policies in place that are being enforced, KPIs and metrics that can measure the effectiveness of those programs, and the ability to, when called upon by a, a regulator, um, to be able to essentially articulate what the organization is doing and to be able to demonstrate that overall consistency. Because the reality is, right, certainly, Regulators have become uh, far more active. There's there's a far greater expectation that organizations are, as we had discussed, um, utilizing technology um, in their in their programs. There's more of an expectation that by regulators that organizations are right sizing their compliance programs for their specific um, for their specific sectors and and, and risk areas. And so it's really an evolution beyond this sort of checklist <laughs> um, type of, of approach. And the reality, too, is, you know, look, in the, the number of investigators, uh, sorry, the, the number of regulators that um, organizations are interacting with 
continues to significantly increase. Um, we saw just recently that even at the at the local municipal level, um, New York City recently um, enacted uh, a piece of, of legislation related to uh, bias around artificial intelligence, and and the the regulator there happens to be the New York City Department of Consumer and, and Worker Protection, and so that is sort of one example of an additional um, regulator that. Historically, I'd say many compliance departments, um, particularly those without large um, um, activities or operations within New York City specifically, may not have had on their radar, right? But it really goes back to that idea of let's build strategic intent, let's build a really strong foundation that we feel good about, that we can confidently articulate and, and defend um, when one called upon by um, to do so by a regulator. So before we move on to our closing questions, let me ask you, what do you think's next for this area of law? We've talked about the past and how things are changed. What's coming next? Well, I'll take a stab at that. Uh, crystal balls are always very uh, difficult. Uh, very clearly that te technology and data is becoming uh, in some ways increasingly uh, available and utilizable, uh, and you'll see that uh, continue. Uh, I also think that you're going to see the, the uh, expansion of compliance uh, internationally, and what this is also going to do is lead to uh, linkages uh, among regulators. Uh, this is especially true when you're dealing with multinational enterprises uh, that will be dealing with multiple jurisdictions with you know multiple of their corporate forms. Uh, and so you're going to see uh, a, a good amount of cooperation, increasing amount of cooperation uh, among the regulators as they begin to examine particular violations. Uh, I It's inconceivable to me uh, that the resources going into compliance will decline uh, in the future. Uh, the the trend is there, and it will be to you know sort of continue uh, to invest in resources because actually this is something that is of concern uh, not just to, and somehow the corporate entity uh, because if it gets caught. Uh, somehow, and when I say it gets caught, we all know that organizations, no matter how hard they try, uh, will have people in there that don't follow the policies and procedures. Uh, and so when that happens, uh, what should be the effect on the corporation? And what they're hearing from regulators everywhere is the better your programs are, uh, the less we're going to fine you or punish you uh, in some fashion. And so there's a huge amount of investment. Uh, I teach a corporations class actually to uh, foreign trained lawyers on U.S. corporate law. Uh, the directors uh, have uh, duties uh, with respect to oversight and management that can extend to compliance. Uh, functions to make sure that there's a compliance, uh, you know, a, a, a proper uh, compliance feature there. So that's not going to continue, uh, it, it discontinue uh, at all as well. Great. And from my perspective, I'll echo a lot of what Don Don very well and very nicely laid out there. Um, certainly, as we as as we look forward, um, we'll continue to see certainly increased resourcing. Um, there currently exists quite a war for talent <laughs> within the, the compliance space. 
uh, both in terms of investigative um, insights as well as technologists and data scientists um, who can support that space. Um, but we'll certainly, I think, as well see the compliance department strengthening within an organization, having additional autonomy, um, additional type of, of independence, um, a continued elevation of the compliance function uh, from often or historically maybe being sort of tucked under the legal function or in some cases even internal audit or, or elsewhere. Um, we'll continue to see, in, in my view, a um, an elevation of that of that compliance function, so that it really becomes more accessible, more approachable uh, by by employees. And and certainly, there's still a lot of work collectively um, we need to do to to again um, empower employees and enable them to be able to relate to and, and appreciate the importance of an organization's compliance function, as well as how to interact with it. I, I always, RJ, I, I think back to, um, we recently at, at EY, um, about two years ago, ran a, a survey, uh, we call it our Global Integrity Report. And, and interestingly, it was half of board members we surveyed said, yes, you know, it's gotten easier for employees to report their concerns. However, <laughs> when we asked employees, those on the ground, only about 25% actually said, yes, it's it's gotten easier. Um, that says to me, there's certainly lots of work to be done um, that will continue to, to be done. And so certainly I think the years ahead will um, be absolutely fascinating in terms of compliance, really um, strengthening and, and enhancing its role. Okay, so now if you're willing, uh, I'm going to ask you a series of four closing questions that we ask to all guests on this podcast. So the first question is, what would be one actionable, monetizable takeaway for, from our listeners from today? Now, I'm going to let Jeremy go first because he's from the private sector and deals with monetizable uh, elements. So, uh, Jeremy, please. Excellent, Don. I, I would say certainly one takeaway is think through ways in which to measure success. Think through ways in which the increasing availability of, of data can assist a compliance function. And, and, and again, it's not to say that um, we're sort of seeking or the expectation is to seek perfection, but rather think through ways in which one might, might thoughtfully um, utilize the increased data available to them to be able to demonstrate and chart over time and, and essentially uh, demonstrate the uh, continued success of a, an evolution of a, of a compliance function and the impact <laughs> which it's, it's having um, on, on employees and, and customers and operations of a business. And, and RJ, let me respond this way. If you're a law student, get a job in compliance. That's monetizable. Uh, I'll also say that uh, from the standpoint of, of any organization, especially any business organization, uh, have a compliance plan in place. Uh, it will not uh, produce money for you, uh, but it may save money uh, for you uh, in the case that there is some uh, compliance violation. Well, Don, your comment about law students leads us into the second closing question, which is, if a student or someone more junior would like to do what you do or get into your area, what advice would you give them? 
Well, I'll let Jeremy start. I'll allow uh, Don as the law professor to uh, take this one first. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not sure you're asking how you become a law professor or, or pursue all of the various areas that I've been involved with. I, I think I'm thinking more about getting into compliance. Yeah, no, getting into compliance. Uh, in my view, there are lots of multinational enterprises, domestic enterprises, too, uh, that have. Uh, compliance uh, programs, officers' uh, needs. Uh, and so it is a good opportunity for students, not just here in the United States, uh, but students from other countries uh, who can bring, actually, if they've trained in the United States, may be perfect uh, for uh, multinationals where English is the language and they've dealt with English, they've dealt with legal skills, uh, they can fit into the compliance uh, efforts uh, even situated abroad. Uh, the way that you do that is you take programs, you take courses, uh, you network, uh, you listen to podcasts like this and others, uh, you learn uh, the area, uh, and and uh, you seek those uh, sort of opportunities. I would answer it as well in terms of saying um, certainly a big part of it is keeping up with uh, the rules and, and the regs, certainly the, the letter of the of the law, right, as well as forthcoming legislation, but also to the excellent point Don raised earlier, um, the, the norms, right? Um, how different challenges are being tackled by by organizations today, whether it's you know ESG or, or AI and, and so on and so forth. I'd also say as well, and uh, perhaps a bit biased in this space, but we, we have a critical need at the moment for um, really individuals who can understand the business and understand legal considerations, but also understand the value of data and technology, right? So the individuals who can essentially um, serve as the translators, if you will, between um, sort of business partners and those within the lines of business and the data scientists and data engineers and, and so on. Um, being able to think through how can I use data in an effective way and being able to think through how can I tell a story based on the data and information available. Um, that skill set is um, incredibly unique, <laughs> um, one that uh, is in very high demand, and, and I am confident um, those who invest in having that familiarity really with both sides of the, of the house, certainly the, the legal and compliance aspects, but also the data and technology aspects, and can um, confidently and articulately uh, weave those, those two, two threads together um will be in in my view very well positioned for uh for success in this space yeah i think that notion of keeping up with what's going on is quite important and, and also leads us into the third closing question which is can you recommend an article book blog website talk or other resource you think that our listeners should check out well, RJ, with, uh, with with a certain amount of caution, uh, there there is actually another uh, podcast in the compliance space uh, th that I've had the opportunity to, uh, to to deal with, and it's actually you know not I mean actually very broad and very good, uh, but it is called the Great Women in Compliance podcast. Uh, it has been it has 
you know, 200 uh, episodes. Uh, it's been going on for close to five years now. Uh, and I've talked with a, the, the, uh, one of the two co-hosts uh, of that program. Uh, you know, compliance is a, a great career opportunity for women uh, as well as men. Uh, and this is an effort to showcase, in some ways, contributions that women and men, they're not uh, limited to who they, uh, you know, sort of uh, will, will share uh, the, the podcast with. Uh, but it, it, there are a lot of uh, important insights and a lot of impressive people uh, who are on that. Yeah, great question. Um, there's certainly, um, you know, are our number of, of, of podcasts and and um, and different pieces. I, I personally um, have benefited from from a lot of the reporting the FT has done, sort of in this space where um, they've nicely sort of tied um, the business aspects with the data and technology aspects. Speaking as a technologist, I, I also um, would point folks to at least as as far as um, we're thinking about AI at, at EY. Uh, we recently launched ey.ai, which essentially is our central repository for various, uh, very thought-provoking and compelling uh, pieces around um, different types of, of impacts, whether around generative AI or, or other types of capabilities um, with a nexus to different uh, risk areas and compliance and legal certainly being, being one of them. And the last question is just, how can our listeners learn more about you and what you do? Excellent. Well, certainly, I appreciate the opportunity uh, to be be your guest here on the on the podcast, RJ. Um, and I, I would say, certainly, um, you know, folks are welcome to reach out to me um, through LinkedIn and similar channels, and, and drop me a note. I am passionate about this space and happy to. Um, always connect with, with with any listeners or even point them and introduce them to others within uh, my, my network um, where particularly there may be interests that um, that that do align and always happy to uh, talk shop <laughs> as they say. And RJ, everyone can go to the Georgetown uh, Law School website. Uh, my directory uh, is I'm in the faculty directory. Uh, you'll see more extensively uh, what I have done. Uh, like Jeremy, I'm on LinkedIn uh, and happy to, you know, ha happy to chat with those people who are interested in the topic. Uh, you know, it's an area that I find uh, increasingly uh, absorbs sort of time and attention, uh, not just of businesses, but of uh, lawyers uh, and is a great, uh, you know, sort of career opportunity uh, for lots of folks. Well, I really enjoyed today's discussion, and I'd like to say how much I appreciate Don and Jeremy taking the time to speak with us about compliance. I'd also like to let everyone know that there's several programs that Georgetown Law runs throughout the year, um, including an upcoming Advanced E-Discovery Institute that I believe uh, some of our e EY friends will be attending. Um, and otherwise, I just want to say thanks for the great discussion. Thank you. Thank you, RJ. So I think we have to leave it there. That's going to be it for this episode of Compliance and Legal Risk. I want to thank our guest speakers the Georgetown Law and EY teams, and of course, all of you for tuning in. If you like what you heard, 
please check out the resources on our website, subscribe or tell a friend, and leave us a review wherever you're listening. Please keep in mind that the opinions of speakers are their own and do not represent the views of Georgetown University or EY. Nothing presented in compliance and legal risk or on its website should be construed as legal advice or as creating an attorney-client relationship. Until next time, stay compliant and control your legal risks.